Hello, and welcome to episode three of Aptim's Aptcast, where a panel of Aptim experts discuss topics that matter to our clients in the government, commercial, and industrial spaces, as well as energy markets. Uh, my name is Bo Southard. Uh, here at Aptim, I am the director of our Coastal Ports and Marine program. Um, today, we'll be discussing coastal restoration and resiliency and its effects on communities and how Aptim is helping to safeguard people in the environments we serve. With me today, I have two of our coastal experts who I'm going to have introduce themselves. Good morning. Uh, I'm Nicole Sharp. I'm our coastal market lead at Aptim, and I'm also uh, one of our senior engineers. How are you doing? I'm Chris Weber. I'm a senior coastal engineer in our Austin office and the Texas commercial director for Aptim. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining here, joining us today and being here with us. Um, I want to start with an overview of some of the complex issues we face in our markets and what our coastal communities and our clients face in, in the coastal market. Um, can you help explain some of, the, some of these challenges and, and, and some of the things we're up against in the coastal world? Uh, absolutely. I think, in my opinion, the competing for funding is always a challenge at the state, federal, and local levels. Uh, trying to find a way to balance in, in Texas and in, in most of the coastal counties the, the large industrial areas where there's uh, inherent money available versus the the lower socioeconomic that still has the same coastal challenges uh, makes for a very complex funding mechanism. Yeah. And I think a lot of the communities that we're trying to aid with their you know, resiliency and adaptation efforts, you know, we have climate change and sea level rise, and it's a little bit unknown of what we're going to see in the future. And trying to make them, you know, be ready for that condition is, you know, very difficult. And, you know, getting the funding for capital projects in place, as Chris mentioned, you're not only trying to get funding from your local source, but also you want cost sharing partners with that. Right. And so we also have resource constraints too, right? Not just financial. But Texas is a great example um, where they need uh, raw materials for their coastal restoration projects, sand resources and, and marsh creation materials. And, and uh, we're able to help out in that regard by doing large-scale seafloor mapping for these communities to help identify these resources. So there's financial resource constraints, there's you know material resource constraints, and sounds like a general uh, difference between communities on how uh, they view these adaptation strategies and the needs and how quickly they may need, may need to implement them. That, that's right. The, the variability of infrastructure is, yeah. is always a challenge. Yeah, like even in southeast Florida and southwest Florida, you know, we've assisted communities with dwindling sand sources. Uh, most people don't think in Florida, South Florida, we're running out of sand, but we are. And, you know, we've assisted communities with finding upland sand sources instead of using offshore material that's been historically used in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. Well, that's great. Um, so what kind of expertise and, and, and skills are needed to, to tackle these challenges? I know that the coastal world is, is, a, is, a, is a diverse, multidisciplinary world. So, so what are some of the things we need to do uh, to, to address these challenges? I mean, I think you need to have a really multidisciplinary, you know, expert team in place to really help guide your clients through the process. It's not just coastal engineering. You know, we look into our, our surveyors, our geologists, you know, the geophysical aspects. So you really need to have a collaborative team in place with creative thinking to create the best solution with, you know, for our clients. Regulatory specialists are, yeah, yeah. Are, are critical, absolutely. Yeah, so also I think of, you know, that multidisciplinary world is even kind of growing. We're adding different types of engineering specialties to help do these adaptation mm -hmm. uh, or do these vulnerability assessments for various types of infrastructure on the coast um, as opposed to earlier uh, 
focus on, on you know, the soft structures and the soft you know, beach infrastructure or shoreline infrastructure. So um, that's one trend I'm seeing is our multidisciplinary team continues to grow. Mm -hmm. It's important to keep in mind, too, that your, your clients are also part of the team, the interdisciplinary team, and educating yeah. them on what they need to know and helping them understand better what their needs are and, and how to address them. In, in a lot of cases, they're not terribly sophisticated. They know they have issues and they have problems that need to be addressed, and including them in the discussion and, and how we will like to help them in those projects is uh, part of that learning curve that helps them get better at doing their work mm -hmm. also. Right, and especially for our, our, our coastal community clients, our coastal government clients, they then have to extrapolate that to their client base, which is their constituency mm -hmm. and the residents along the coast. So right. there's a need to help educate not only our clients, tackle these challenges, but the overall community as well, so they understand the importance and the need. Um, what, what makes Aptum stand out as the right partner in, in these types of, of, of projects and programs? I think the advantage with Aptum is that we have everyone in-house. We have the permitting staff, we have the engineering, we have the geology, we have the survey, we have the resiliency staff, all under the Aptum brand. So you can come to us with, for any one of your needs and we're able to service you for what you know that specific project requires. Right. And, and, and scale of projects too. We can do from the small projects mm -hmm. all the way up to super large scale projects as well. Yeah, we've just recently permitted a 300 cubic yard, you know, small marina project locally, but then we've done million cubic yard dredging projects for larger clients. So, you know, we can scale up and scale down as needed. Uh, what about project examples or, or, or project needs that encompass both these soft uh, green solutions to the gray solutions? Do we have some examples of projects like that that might be larger scale? Like the IHNC projects, one that, 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 that jumps to mind. No. Um, the Bayouchian floodgate. Um, yeah. I worked on that one briefly in the Louisiana office, um, and that is the largest of its kind um, in the world, is, is my understanding. Um, relatively new to the, to the Aptham family, um, but it was, it was interesting to work on that as it was getting put in place, yep. and installed, and with the ribbon cutting opening, it was a, a great example of a very large-scale project serving a, a real need for the community. Right. And some other examples uh, in Louisiana, um, including um, the Inner Harbor Navigation Canal surge barrier, a large surge barrier that protects the Mr. Go and Inner Harbor of the New Orleans greater metropolitan area, um, and other projects we're doing marsh creation in front of those barriers. So, so combining those green marsh creation acreage type project protection projects, which are backed up by these large scale uh, civil works projects. So combining those together. Um, uh, it provides a holistic approach to, to upland uh, community protection. Um, Nicole, how does Aptum design and adapt our projects to meet our clients' specific needs? Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, so I think the biggest um, you know step is you know meeting with your client first off, have that kickoff meeting, see what they really need, what they want, you know what their funding is, and you work with them within those constraints. So I think for you know some of our clients, you know they have a large scale uh, beach renourishment program, so we're planning projects to last eight to ten years for them. Other clients, they look more on the localized scale, so they're trying to manage you know two to three year programs. So I think we really sit down and understand our clients' needs and desires, and we tailor our projects to those needs, and also what's best for the environment and the conditions that you know their uh, community faces. Right, so um, what's some examples of, of how we creatively or flexibly 
build some flexibility into our, to our programs. Okay. So one example would be on the west coast of Florida on Captiva. We recently went out to bid uh, for their 2021 renourishment project. So for them, uh, that, it's an island. So they have a large tourist season during the winter months. So they didn't want to disrupt the tourists with, you know, dredge pipes all over the beach. So we went out during an optimal and suboptimal season. And the optimal season is the non-tourist season, but it actually coincides with sea turtle nesting season. But we went through the process and permitted it through the proper agencies that there were protections in place that we could construct during sea turtle nesting season without disturbing the sea turtles, but also we wouldn't disturb the tourists also. And then we had the suboptimal season, which was the high months, which include you know Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's holiday. So we went out to bid, and most dredgers can't work in Florida because of sea turtle nesting season. So by going out with these two different seasons and telling the dredger, hey, you can actually work during this you know, usual environmental window, we saved our client about $2.5 million um, on project bids. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example that pops to my mind is, is what we're doing in the northern Gulf of Mexico for large-scale sediment mapping. Uh, we're working with a number of clients to, to identify these large sand resources that are going to be needed for coastal restoration projects. And I've been able to work with multiple different jurisdictions to, to get a bigger bang for their buck in terms of mobilization, whereas working with uh, state agencies in state water work, but coupling that from that same mobilization with federal work, with federal agencies funding through some of these state agencies. So uh, we're able to leverage our expertise and experience um, and our knowledge of how to do these jobs uh, to, to, to allow for cost efficiencies for multiple jurisdictions who all have a shared goal here. So, In, in Texas, we work with a local client in a repetitive survey, beach survey. Um, there were places that were intentionally left out initially in, in the first couple that we went back working with the client to identify that there was these other locations that were really needed more information, more data for a holistic approach for how you'd manage the sand and the sediments along the beaches. So over the course of working with that client, we were identifying additional places that we would uh, apply our resources to help them better understand their local dynamics along the beach. Great. That's very important. Um, Interesting responses to this. Um, How does the work we do affect local communities and, and, and subsets of local communities, different industries or different community groups? Well, I think one of the, you know, big communities that we do hit is the tourist industry that you know it florida is a thriving tourism industry going to our beaches and the office of economic and demographic research produced a study i believe it was a few years ago that found out that beaches have a return on investment over five you know that's huge yeah and it's actually larger than you know a uh, central florida's tourism draw so you know just having you know what we do bring that type of money into communities and some of these tourism you know communities are at the billions of dollar range so it really supports that local economy you know the the people working on the beaches the hoteliers you know the tour you know everyone that interacts with the tourists so i think you know it really helps with those and then i know with texas you know i think you have more of the environmental aspect with the the fishing community and We have, outside of the large metropolitan areas, we have a a lot of smaller communities that are considered fishing villages. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're towns, they're cities, but it's it's important that that way of life where, excuse me, the the fishing is part of the inherent lifestyle there. It's it's part of the family, it's part of the business, it's part of the culture. 
and helping them maintain that part of, of their lifestyle is incredibly important. Yeah. And I, I think another good example of that, too, is also in the northern Gulf of Mexico where we have a large oil and gas industry, right? And and the Bioshane bio floodgate is a good example of that. Uh, it is not only protecting the local residents and the communities there, but protecting the, the, the upstream uh, resources, the boats, the, the, the crews, the uh, uh, pumping stations and, and things of that nature from large-scale uh, intrusion of, of storm surge and other things. So uh, it really does kind of affect all these different coastal community um, groups and subgroups across the board. Um, Chris, specifically, you know, Texas and other states, how does our work uh, uh, have a, an effect at the state level? Uh, it, it's intrinsic. Um, Epton does a great job of integrating with the, the state, local, and even the, the federal programs. Um, one of the examples is large-scale offshore mapping, uh, identifying offshore sediment resources, identifying the geophysics that are available. Um, they, they work together hand-in-glove. The, the state is the non-federal sponsor for the vast majority of the coastal program in, in Texas, and it's, it's a piece of the puzzle. And we help them identify and understand their needs and then help them execute their projects in, in their systems in Texas. And it's, again, it kind of goes back to the interdisciplinary aspect where the, the state reaches out to anyone that can help. And there are several different agencies that, that we interact with to help them identify uh, connecting the dots, um, how you connect funding to projects, how you connect um, personnel and people and skill sets and expertise to those projects. Right. Um, so it's it's a pretty integrated system in order to get these, these projects up and running. Yeah, and that, that leads me to, to another state example, state of Louisiana. We've talked a lot about design and some of the initial studies that we do in, to support these, but one thing we, we haven't talked about is the monitoring of these projects. Another statewide program for monitoring that we do is the coastwide reference um, CRIMS, Coastwide Reference and Monitoring System for the state of Louisiana, uh, where, where we uh, deploy and maintain through a joint venture uh, a large, over nearly 400 station coastal monitoring program that, that monitors sea level, sedimentation, vegetation, all the different components of the natural environment to see how our coastal restoration projects are improving or, or changing or protecting the environment. Um, and that, that leads me to, you know, another thought, because CRIMS is a really good example of our technology. What types of technologies and things do we employ at Aptim that uh, um, is really advancing the, the engineering and science of the coastal world? Um, I, I know in Texas we're using traditional surveying geomatics, high-resolution survey data, and, and also implementing the, the larger unmanned aerial vehicle surveys moving a little further offshore. Mm -hmm. um, it's... It's helping with the photogrammetry, um, looking at the vegetation, looking at the shorelines, uh, and then also used in construction observation, um, where you can do real-time construction uh, of projects and, and understand a little bit of, of how that's going along the way. Yeah. And I think in Florida, um, you know, for most of our clients, their projects require some type of numerical modeling. So we use advanced models such as Stealth 3D, uh, Mike 21, you know, just models to help guide us in the process as a tool in our belt. Also, on the surveying front, uh, for several Florida clients, we've done 3D mapping. So it, it creates a, a really nice image and a DEM that they can utilize, you know, for their coastal management program. Right, no, that's great stuff. Two other things that popped in my mind, um, the use of UAVs for our construction administration and observation component, that's something we've recently added uh, and built upon are also our cloud-based construction observation uh, programs that we've added. 
that allows us to do these observations in real time, uploaded to the cloud, where our clients and contractors and team members can see construction observations and project uh, issues or challenges or successes in real time. Um, and jumping back to the CRIMS project, another thing we uh, have implemented this, uh, this cycle is data telemetry. So real-time data telemetry from some of our remote you know, sites out in the bayous of Louisiana to get that data back to our data repository and dashboards. That, that's always a challenge. Yeah. yeah. When, when you're collecting high volume data, which as an engineer, I, I love data. I love lots of data mm-hmm. and I'll figure out how to use it. We'll figure out later how to get it all implemented. Yeah. But pu- going out and pulling it off the systems, figuring out how to get large data sets from, from the deep field where there's not a lot of infrastructure around is always a challenge. So yeah. that's, that's a, a pretty amazing approach to get the real time telemetry based data sharing. Yeah which is great. All right, continuing on the technology theme, um, how do we keep up with, invest in, and train our teams for, for these developing cutting-edge technologies that we use? Well, I think one of the most important things is uh, training our own staff. So we make sure not only are we doing our own internal training, but sometimes we send staff out for external training from you know companies that maybe develop our models or develop the software that we're utilizing. Um, most recently, we've got some really cool technology uh, for construction observations utilizing a drone in a box where it really takes the user aspect out of it and you can really program your construction observations and uh, just have the drone out there without needing uh, actually personnel on site. Uh, drone on call. Yes, uh-huh. exactly, your concierge drone. <laughs> nice, yeah. Um, another example that I can think of is a project we've done in uh, Manatee County where we uh, adapted and used for the first time a um, drone-based magnetometer to do some magnetic anomaly mapping in the near shore. Uh, it, it greatly increased our ability to uh, cover a large area in a quick time in a high-quality manner as opposed to manually diving with handheld magnetometers. And, and this was an investment both from our client but, but also from us, uh, putting in the time and energy, putting extra staff out um, on, on, on our time in order to train the staff in this new technology. Um, we're able to uh, replicate it and test it multiple times so that we can uh, get the bugs out and learn what we can about that system. So now it's you know, ready to, to deploy for, for other clients moving forward. So we also participate in the national professional societies where we're engaging uh, at a very high level national and the, the state level student chapters when we get uh, reached down that far, but the state chapters for professional engineers, professional scientists, um, in engaging in an industry-wide discussion of what is the state of the art, what is the state of the industry, um, looking at how other people are thinking through projects, so it helps us inform how we can look at some of the best technology that's available, some of the best think that's out there in order to get to um, the better results, not only for the environment and our clients, but also to do good projects. Right, that's great. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, how does APTA monitor climate change and specifically rising sea levels? How, how far in the future do we look when we're uh, representing our clients and designing projects? Well, one aspect of sea level rise is what is the duration? What is the lifespan of the project that you're designing for? So inherently, we're building sea level rise and climate change into all of our projects. For beach renourishment projects, we typically use Corps of Engineer guidance and try to uh, predict the sea level rise over the span of the design life of the project. So a lot of our projects, 
you know, we have a permit for 10, 15 years. So we're easily able to identify what type of sea level rise are we going to anticipate in that time frame. And we can easily adapt if we need to add an extra half foot into our project design by, you know, getting a permit modification or, you know, coordinating with the agencies to see, you know, how we can, you know, make sure that the beach is more resilient. But for longer term projects, uh, such as coastal structures, that's when you really have to start looking at the various scenarios. So, um, uh, for example, for funding in Florida, they want you to look at the planning horizons for 2040 and 2070. Uh, what will the sea, li- sea level rise be in you know those time frames? So I think when you're building more of a hard structure, that's when we really dig into what scenario is best. So I know um, Chris was mentioning you know different scenarios and how do we utilize them. So if you want to go into those, I, I think most of the the practitioners are very familiar with the IPCC uh, relative sea level rise curves and where we fall on those curves. Is it the low, is it the intermediate low, the intermediate high or the high? And the range is extraordinary. Um, worst case scenario, we're several meters in a hundred years in the time frame. And a lot of what we're doing for, for monitoring sea level rise is determining where we fall on those curves. And it's variable along the shorelines. It's not consistent everywhere. So, so Texas has some variability. North Gulf of Mexico and, and Florida all have different locations on those curves. But we tend to be trending towards the intermediate high, intermediate low relative sea level rise curves, which is it's alarming and it's it's a very um, critical component for how you think through your your project design is how much buffer can you put in and um, when is it going to be eliminated? When are you actually exceeding those curves? And it goes back to the CRIMS. It's, it's data collection. It's as much data as you can get. It's, it's as much as we can figure out now is going to help us predict what we need to do over the 20, 30, 40 year life cycles. Right. Great. Um, do we, is that, are we seeing a, an increase here at Aptim for, for the need from clients and, and organizations for coastal restoration, coastal protection, coastal resiliency uh, support? I would say yes. I think with you know seeing the impacts from climate change and sea level rise, it's not only doing the projects we've historically done, such as beach, beach renourishment, seawalls, some type of coastal stabilization, but we're now getting pulled into uh, assisting community with vulnerability assessments. Nicole and Chris, I want to thank you both very much for being with us here today. Um, and for those of you listening, Aptim is an industry leader headquartered out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, we have more than 4,000 uh, team members worldwide. We specialize in environmental services, resiliency, sustainability, and environmental solutions, as well as technical and data solutions, program management, and critical infrastructure. Uh, please come back next month for more Aptim expertise. In the meantime, please subscribe to Aptcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Thanks Bob. Thanks.